Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm filling in for Dave Robson, who is, uh, I believe, on his way home pretty soon. So that's exciting that he had a chance to go to his the home of his birth in the UK and uh, take where, his... Where everyone sounds British. Yes. <laughs> Not just him, yep. I, I wonder if when he goes back there, if people accuse him of having an American accent. Oh, yes. His, family his, calls his accent him has, him, yeah. his, it has degraded. Ah, uh, well, yeah, it's been Americanized just a little bit. Bad company corrupts good character, as the <laughs> proverb says. So. Yep. yep. <laughs> and I'm sure that his accent might be even slightly thicker when he comes home. We probably will notice for about a week or so. <laughs> well, uh, we're so glad to be with you today. This is a weekday Bible answer program called A Reason for Hope, where we take questions from those who uh, watch our live stream and leave their questions in the comment sections. And we take questions from them about the Bible, about the Christian worldview, how to apply specific passages to their lives, or perhaps questions about the Christian faith and its truthfulness. So if that's you, if you want to uh, know more about how the Christian faith would apply to your life as a believer, um, how the Word of God uh, can make an impact in your life, that's my fault. I know better. <laughs> that's usually my fault. <laughs> Boy, I feel much better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so we would uh, encourage you to join us online if you would. We have multiple ways you can join our live stream. That's, of course, we live stream to the most popular social media platforms, at least in our opinion. Uh, Facebook would be the first place you could go to watch the live stream. And if you're listening right now live, then you're probably on one of these. Uh, so if you go to Facebook.com and uh, type in at CCF Tucson, you go straight to our page. And if you do, we would encourage you to like our page. And if you enjoy this program, A Reason for Hope, please share it. Uh, hit the like button and share it to your news feed. That will grow our uh, visibility to others. And our goal, of course, is to not be popular, but to be salt and light to as many people as possible. If you would prefer to go to YouTube, you can do that as well. And if you happen to catch us there, please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services from here in Tucson, Arizona at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So if you want to uh, follow along in the book of Ezekiel, uh, you can join us on Wednesday evenings. If you want to go through the book of Acts, you can join us on Sunday mornings and so on. Uh, you can also look at our archives. We teach uh, through the Bible book at a time. So if you want to go through the book of the Bible as a study, then go to our website and uh, check it out. Our YouTube handle is A Reason for Hope 546. If you go to YouTube, you can either search for A Reason for Hope or just type that in and you'll go straight to there if you're watching this somewhere else. If you want to avoid those social media platforms, you can catch our archives and go to Rumble and just kind of watch the program post. We don't live stream there, but we do post our videos there and we separate them by the questions that are asked during that program. So it's a great place to go to do a search and say, well, I have a question about this subject and go through and see if that subject's addressed. If you do do that, uh, please follow us on Rumble. We'd like to grow our audience there and we're just using it right now as a place to archive our program. If you want to avoid all social media platforms altogether, just go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, hit that watch live on our navigation and you can actually watch our services and this program live. There's a chat box where you can ask your questions. And if you need prayer, there's a little nifty button. You can make a prayer request, and we'd be happy to go to our Lord on your behalf. <clears throat> we also have a Bible app. If you want to download that from the Apple or Google Play Store, 
this Bible app is a great way to stay connected with our community here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we have sort of an extended community. We have people who engage with us who are part of us uh, from all over the world. So we would appreciate if you would download that and you can watch our services. It's got a nifty little digital Bible where you can leave notes, uh, highlight. You can start chat groups, join chat groups. And most importantly, you can engage with our community through all our events that we have going on here on our campus. <clears throat> we also have our services and this program stream to the Amazon and Roku platform. So if you have a Roku device or an Amazon Fire device, you can add our channel to your device and watch our services that way. And if you'd like to ask a question on this program, A Reason for Hope, a little more discreetly, you can just email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope, all letters, no numbers, all spelled out at gmail.com for those of you listening in on the radio. Also, I'd encourage you to uh, follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. And you can do so at ScottR4H. Go to Twitter.com and uh, search for at ScottR4H. Very informative and entertaining Twitter feed. Really encourage you to do that. Excited to get your questions today. It is Wednesday, so if you would like to further your study and understanding of the book of Ezekiel, I'd encourage you to stick around if you're watching now. Uh, 30 minutes after this program ends, we will start our evening oasis service, where we will be continuing our study through the book of Ezekiel. Indeed. Awesome. Very <laughs> dicey portion of the book <laughs> of Ezekiel. Did you know that uh, the rabbis uh, would not allow anyone under 30 to read the book of Ezekiel? And tonight you're going to find out why. Wow. <laughs> so I'm how's that? For Song of Solomon. How's that for a uh, a a little bit of a teaser? Yeah, there. that's a big <laughs> teaser. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, would you pray for our time before we get to questions today? Surely. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Fill my Father and I with your Spirit and enable us to answer the questions that will be asked today with your heart as well as your words. Thank you that we have the privilege of being here, and we invite you to be as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah. Well, well, a couple things uh, right off uh, the bat, uh, blowing up uh, on the interwebs today is the fact that Madonna uh, mm. has uh, taken a uh, bad turn health-wise, I guess, over the weekend. She came down with a bacteriological infection uh, that became so pronounced uh, she was hospitalized and intubated. Uh, from what reports are telling us. She was found unresponsive in her room. Latest reports seem to uh, say that she has taken a turn for the better and uh, is recovering. Uh, the only reason I bring that up, aside from the fact that it's all over the internet, is uh, it's fascinating to me to see the responses uh, to this on the internet, uh, particularly in the Christian community. There seems to be somewhat of a controversy as to whether someone should pray for an individual like Madonna, who obviously through pop culture and her contributions thereof, uh, leading by example, has done an awful lot of damage to people spiritually down through time. So, you know, the, the question is, is this, uh, you know, I guess destiny, fate, uh, justice, catching up with somebody? Or is this a situation where uh, the grace and mercy of God should be liberally applied? Uh, you know, I guess I'd throw that out to you, Sean. Uh, the 
internet seems rather divided on all of this. Where should we be? Well, as far as a biblical perspective is concerned, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. You can acknowledge that someone is wicked, but still not wish their eternal separation from the Father. You can acknowledge that someone's done great damage to themselves and others, but if we're going to make an apt comparison, we can note in John chapter 8, when Jesus addressed the woman caught in adultery, he didn't affirm her in her affair. He didn't even necessarily go into, well, it was the circumstances you were being manipulated. Nothing needed to be said apart from the fact that she is one sinner among many and much like with Madonna much like with anyone else yes she is rightly categorized as of the prostitute sort but when it comes to someone standing before God whether it's by 10,000 miles or 12 we're both in need of restoration and we would hope that for anyone while it's still called today of course as well for the sake of those who have been I'd say, impacted by her spiritual example, that certainly breaks our hearts. And when she makes arguments, when she makes claims, when she even parades these sort of things as good, we can argue against her, we can oppose her, we can say this is not the direction you want to go in life, and even proactively shame her and those who follow her example. But that doesn't mean that we hate them. It means that we acknowledge the fact that there is something right and that this is not it. When we disagree with someone, it means that we want something better for them, and if they actively refuse it, then we can only move on to those who still haven't gone that direction in life. So prayers are for Madonna for her to know her ultimate Lord and Savior because he's the only one who can, but also noting as well that's not because of the desperation of her situation, that's because that's the place that we're all in. That being said, when we're arguing against her lifestyle, we do recognize a distinction between her and what she promotes. Right now, currently, she is not arguing for hedonism. She is not cursing the gospel, so we can pray for her. But when she starts to go her old ways again, we can answer her then as well. But at this moment, she is someone who's sick, someone who's in need of healing, and especially someone in need of spiritual healing as much as the uh, health-wise. Yeah, I, I think that sums it up. Mm. You know, Again, not the uh, sick who need a physician, uh, or the healthy need a physician, but the sick. Yeah. Jesus said he didn't come to call uh, the righteous to repentance, but uh, sinners. Mm. So I think that should be our prayer. Maybe this is going to be a great wake-up call for her. <clears throat> Isn't it also important to remember that they're not technically the enemy? Our battle's not against flesh and blood, blood but against powers and principalities, and that, yes, we should speak the truth <clears throat> and combat anti-God <laughs> ideas, uh, ideas that are of the flesh and will destroy people, but uh, shouldn't we also not revel in their demise in a sense that... Yeah, that's the two different scenarios. Someone Mm -hmm. who's making an argument, who's opposing the truth, and someone who's simply experiencing the fallen effects of this world. We pray for them when they are in any situation that we would not want to find ourselves in, but if they are opposing the gospel, that'd be different than where she is now. Yeah, but wouldn't we... Even if she was opposed, uh, speaking out against the gospel, we would still pray for those who persecute you, and uh, we wouldn't celebrate her life or anything, but still say, "Well, I hope God." We'd argue her points to you. and pray for her. Yeah, well, exactly, the weapons yeah. of our warfare are not uh, carnal, but spiritual, for the pulling down of strongholds. Paul wrote that was mm-hmm. talking about proud arguments that raise themselves up against the knowledge of mm-hmm. God. Um, yeah, we do have a battle to fight uh, against people that have been vehicles that Satan's used mightily. Uh, to uh, promote, I guess, for lack of a better term, hedonism mm. uh, as a way of finding fulfillment in life. Uh, and that should be in the realm of ideas. That should be in the realm of 
showing that Jesus came to show us that there's more to life than stimulating your nerve endings, mm. even uh, being able to show uh, how at the end of the line of a life uh, devoted to that sort of thing. I think about Ernest Hemingway's great example. Uh, toward the end of his life, he said that he lived in a, a vacuum as empty and lonely as a radio tube with no electricity to plug into. It wasn't long after that he took his uh, life with a shotgun blast. Uh, now, prior to that, there was no pleasure, there was uh, no uh, experience uh, that Ernest Hemingway uh, denied himself. He grew up in a Christian home, completely rebelled against the gospel. You know, mm. did not want to have anything to do with it, obviously uh, lived his life along that line. But uh, all the success and all the stimulation of your nerve endings uh, finally could not uh, do anything about, I, I guess what Pascal called that God-shaped vacuum that's inside mm -hmm. of us, that intense inner loneliness when a person is alienated from God. And uh, you can try to fill it up with as many worldly pleasures or experiences or accomplishments or material blessings as you want, but um, you're never going to be able to fill that vacuum. Mm -hmm. It's been said that unbelief is like a black hole, uh, no matter how much you put into it. Uh, nothing, not even light, escapes it. Mm. And it's a very lonely and awful place to be. In a sense, it's almost a preview of coming attractions because eternity uh, separated from God. Uh, you know, it's described in a number of ways in Scripture, uh, none of them uh, positive, described as Gehenna, a horrible uh, garbage dump outside of Jerusalem that became that. Uh, because it was a place where infant sacrifice took place, a place of evil and corruption. Uh, it's been called outer darkness in the scripture. It's been called the lake of fire. Uh, people say, well, do you think that those things are just symbolic? Well, C.S. Lewis said we better hope they aren't uh, because a symbol is something we can't understand that points to a greater reality that we can't understand. But all those things point to the fact that mm. uh, when we turn our back on God, who is the author of every good and perfect gift, uh, we're not just turning our back on God, we're turning our back on all the things that God gives to us that are good and perfect. Uh, you know, in hell, there's no such thing as love. There's no such mm -hmm. thing as relationship. There's no such thing as fulfillment. There's no such thing as peace. There's no such thing as rest. Uh, there's no such thing as joy. There's no such thing as excitement. Just mm -hmm. the horrid experience of having to live with yourself and the memories of what could have been forever. So, well, uh, Definitely, if uh, you haven't come to know God in a personal way, that's what Jesus came to save you from. Mm -hmm. And he was so committed to saving us from this uh, destination that he died on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for our sins, literally taking the wrath of God that was due us upon himself so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God and given eternal life, uh, to be able to spend uh, forever with God in whose uh, presence is fullness of joy, his right hand of pleasures forevermore. Uh, all of the earthly pleasures that uh, people like Madonna and others have tried to sell as the be-all and end-all of life are going to come to an end and ultimately don't satisfy. But uh, the, the, the blessing, the, the pleasure of being in the presence of your Creator and being fulfilled and being everything He created you to be, being able to receive and relate perfect love, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, without any kind of uh, fear or failure involved with it, that alone is something we should look forward to. And that's what Jesus came to give us if we will put our faith and our trust in him, turn away from the hedonistic ways of this world and put our trust in God. Uh, that's what we uh, need to do to have that relationship. Mm. Amen. And 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So if you've never made that decision out there to put your faith and trust in Christ, man, I encourage you to do so and do so as uh, quickly as you possibly can. Length of our lives like a morning fog. First you see it and then it's gone. I guarantee you, um, gosh, since the time we started this program, um, thousands of people on this planet have departed who probably didn't think that today would be their day. So uh, don't wait on that. Make your decision. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, and he will save you, cause you to be born again, give you the power to live a brand new life in the here and now, a foretaste of heaven, and the fulfillment of it when you get to the other side. So um, if you haven't done that, just simply by prayer. Say, Lord, I realize I've sinned. I realize my sins have separated me from you, and uh, I offer no excuse. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. Come into my heart. Make me a brand new person. This day I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior, and God will always answer that prayer, even when you pray it. So don't delay. Pray that prayer, and uh, watch God work in your life. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Scott. What's that passage? Today is the day for salvation. What was the where is that in the, the context of that? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's mm. in the book of Hebrews, mm. chapter 2 and 3, I believe. Yeah. Today's the day. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Pastor Scott. And uh, our next question was a follow-up from Nob, or Nob, with a K. Uh, thank you for joining the program. A uh, little follow-up from last week. Um, how exactly did God create the earth? Uh, apparently... Vice President um, said that, um, I think this may have been Mike Pence, the previous uh, Vice President, but uh, I know God created the earth. How he did it, I will ask him someday. So it is a mystery. Um, I guess that's kind of the context of the question. I'm not quite sure what you're asking there, Nob, but um, <clears throat> how is there any... Is there really a mystery on how God created the universe? Or Well, I'd say go to Genesis 1, right? Yeah, obviously we can just lay it out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As the Hebrew literate person in the room here, the word bara literally means to create from nothing, as opposed to asa, which means to create from pre-existing matter. Right. Now, if we're going to ask, like, did he introduce... Uh, like the laws of physics and then generate the matter first or do they generate the matter and then assemble it into this ongoing structure the laws of physics that's a level of nuance that borders on absurd if you're going to say I don't trust the Bible unless it explains to me in some you know Harvard step-by-step -step cooking sheet with like a <laughs> five-page you know background story about how you first discovered salt and pasta could taste good together and whatever then you're not reading the Bible objectively if we're given just a plain historical account, where did these things come from? I think whoever you were referring to was fair in saying, let's avoid the specifics on things we're not told. Let's emphasize the difference between saying nothing created everything and something created something. That, I think, is fair. If, on the other hand, you're talking to individuals, uh, for example, cross-examined, got into trouble when they said, you know, uh, biblical inerrancy. The Bible doesn't tell us, you know, about all the natures of creation. They made room for the day-age theory, the gap theory, macroevolution, and so forth. Uh, maybe God created, as far as the entirety of Genesis 1, in stages that don't mean days, but are in a process, and, you know, that's what evolution is now con uh, um, recognizing. That would, of course, be a problem. But if we're just talking about Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we're talking about the infinite God, a immaterial or spiritual 
timeless or eternal and uh, omnipresent or spaceless entity introducing concepts like time, space, and matter. Mm. The things that he wasn't, he introduced, and that what we now call the universe were designed and introduced intentionally by him for the purpose of the earth being inhabited. And we see how he produced that forms the structure of the Hebrew week and that God's cessation of his work on the seventh day, which would have been Saturday, by their reckoning and our dates and names, would have been in order to model for them the rest that they had in him. So in what we believe, six literal days, and on the seventh he rested, doesn't mean that, uh, oh, you know, God specifically uh, introduced the stars in a way where, you know, the sound concussed against this specific kind <clears throat> of... Uh, no, we're not told that, yeah. but we are told <laughs> that what started had a starter. And I think if that's your only question, if that's your only statement, fair. If they're going the route of what does inerrancy mean anymore, then we've got a problem. Then we ought to divide fellowship. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 3, I guess maybe this could also be what Nob was getting at in the question. Uh, there we read, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things that were seen were not made of things which are visible. Okay, how did God create all things? He spoke it into existence. Um, you know, again, we're told, for instance, in Psalm 33, uh, that, uh, that uh, God was the one who, again, spoke the heavens into existence. Uh, you know, he was the one who literally made uh, what is out of nothing uh, by his command. Uh, and so, you know, can we quantify that? Can we measure that in a lab? Well, by its very definition, we cannot because it is something that is beyond the physical. Mm. Science does a great job of telling us what happens in the physical. It can't really tell us so much the why of what happens beyond the physical, or even the what that happens beyond yeah. the physical. Mm. If you were to ask me how I put a salt shaker through the table, I would say sleight of hand. That's how I do it. But uh, if you wanted to know the mechanics, I could probably explain to you because I'm a human, but if you were to ask God, how did you bring something out of nothing? Well, um, I'm God. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and, and we as and we as human beings uh, only uh, can relate to things based upon our experience. Uh, you know, we say, well, you know, I just I, I can't understand how God could be. You know, it's like people ask the question, uh, "Who created God?" Well, it's almost like asking the question, "Who's that bachelor married to?" Mm -hmm. um, God is the uncreated one. Yeah. The creation that He made is not Him. He's not bound by it. He is beyond and above it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when we say that, you're saying, okay, uh, the uncreated basis for all things is eternal. Who created him? Yeah, it's a it, nonsensical statement. It's an absurd statement yeah. to begin with. Only so. created things need creators. Yes. God was not created, and therefore it does not require a creator. Yeah, everything that, has a be, uh, has a, that is caused has a beginning, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But God is uncaused. He has always been. Yeah. He's the I am the one who was and is and will be so mm -hmm. yeah awesome stuff uh really tough question um not tough but emotionally difficult so hopeful wants to know uh, when a christian has an affair and the party that they affected decided to divorce is the offending part the person who committed the adultery uh free to remarry or is it just the person who um in initiated the divorce because they were the one who was offended uh, 
are they the only ones that can remarry and, or if the person who committed the adultery if they repent even if the divorce took place can they remarry and then there was a little follow-up part of it is uh, hopeful uh, appears to have been a non-believer married to a believer and then when the hopeful became a believer apparently the the spouse divorced him and and that's very tragic and difficult uh, but uh, as far as the general question, how would you uh, answer that? Yeah, uh, three, I guess, angles to take that from. Firstly, if we're going off of the Mosaic Code, which is a accurate view of how to deal with these sort of issues, um, when it comes to remarriage on the part of the adulterer as opposed to the adultery, the approach was that they couldn't remarry one another. But if you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul into the New Covenant notes that reconciliation under those circumstances is a fantastic example of the grace of God. So that's a first when we note the distinction. Secondly, if we're going to say, well, it's forbidden for me to remarry, I need to either go back to my old husband in any and all circumstances or I'm in sin, you have to be careful with that as well because noting when the adultery took place before you came to relationship with God, a la 1 Corinthians 5, what else would you do? You can't be held to the standard you didn't have at that time, but then being brought into the fold of Christ, holding those things against you, I, I guess there was some bitterness in the part of the first spouse. That's unfortunate, but it is uh, a situation where, biblically, from his perspective, the two grounds for divorce biblically would be unfaithfulness and abuse. So if we're going to take that approach, it was legally justified, but it wasn't modeling the heart of God. As far as what the crux of the question is, do I have permission to remarry? Well, every single day we have the opportunity to live in light of the grace God's shown to us. Lamentations chapter 3 notes that his mercies are new every morning, and that was speaking right. towards a nation who had done a lot more than adultery, let me tell you. Yeah. But if we're talking about the social issue, the social ramifications, obviously the first step that if you were to come here for marital counseling, uh, first thing to do would be to seek reconciliation with your original spouse, and if that doesn't happen, if they are unwilling to do so, if they've gone and remarried, then we plainly recognize that obviously either God's calling you to live in singleness or to pursue another relationship with him in light of the fact that you know have a new life in him, that when you committed the affair, it was before you could be held to a standard that Jesus modeled in you, that the Holy Spirit can now do through you. But note as well, there's a lot of moving parts. We go back to the mosaic. It's, okay, I can't remarry my spouse, but in the New Covenant, we know that's an ideal, not a exception. There was a limitation on remarriage because we didn't want people taking advantage of um, dowries. Right. Uh, the second issue is, okay, they've remarried or they're not willing to reconcile. What do I do now? Well, note where God has called you and equipped you for relationships. They're getting more complicated by the day. And if you have the opportunity to live content in your relationship with Jesus, all the better. But to say that you'd be cut off from any form of marital relationship because you were the offending party, well, again, note the context. That was before you had a relationship with Jesus. Now you're living a new life. Here's, and then referencing lamentations. But the third issue is, of course, okay, given all of these details, given the harm that you acknowledge you've done, regardless of where you stood with the Lord or not, there are still consequences for it. The idea 
adultery or not, of entering into a marital relationship with someone is a ministry, and God has to be in it. So past, present, or future, make sure that where God has you in that relationship is something he's calling you to. And if guilt is the guiding force behind what God's called you to do, I'd say that's, well, in most situations, unfortunate, but legitimate. If on the other hand were to say, okay, guilt's showing me this may not be where God's calling me, but what ultimately does this amount to? Mounts an opportunity to glorify God, and if you're pursuing another relationship in light of your new relationship with God, I'd say it's a new work that God could do, or I can say it might be something God's not calling you to do. Make sure you take it up with Him. Those are the three ways I'd look at it. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, pretty comprehensive. The key issue is, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure of all the details, but it sounds to me like uh, the marital unfaithfulness happened before this person was born again. Yeah. You, you can't really expect uh, a non-believer to behave like a believer mm-hmm. uh, or to be held to the same standards regarding uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage as you would a believer under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sad to me that, you know, there's a person that's become a Christian, wants to pursue reconciliation, and they seem to be being rebuffed over all of that. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize that, you know, hurts can run pretty deep in all of this, but, um, you know, I would really be praying uh, in this set of circumstances uh, for the uh, the bitterness of heart on the person who just said, no way, not going back, done, over. Um, that's something, if that person is born again, that God is going to want to deal with them on. Uh, you know, until all that gets reconciled, in a sense, uh, you find out, uh, you know, say that uh, that person who is the offended party goes out and marries somebody else. I would say job one is not just look for someone who's going to replace that person in the relationship. You know, seek to be the kind of example of reconciliation that we see all through Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're going through the book of Ezekiel on uh, Wednesday nights, and one of the things that you see over and over again in Ezekiel is that uh, God loved Israel. Uh, you know, we see pictures of uh, uh, an image of God as the, the, the husband in Israel as the bride. Uh, we see pictures of God as the father and Israel as uh, the wayward children and so on. But God never gives up. Uh, he continues to reach out mm-hmm. and tries to pursue reconciliation. The book of Hosea is all over that sort of thing. God told Hosea to go out and marry a woman who's a prostitute and she's going to have children uh, by prostitution. So people will see exactly what I've been dealing with in dealing uh, with Israel. Well, you know, it happens. This woman runs away. She gets sold and she's being sold in the slave market for bargain basement prices because she's been so abused. And God says, no, go and buy her back, you know, because that's what I'm going to do with Israel. So obviously God wants us, if it's at all possible, to pursue reconciliation. If it's not possible, then I would say under the circumstance in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, talks about uh, unbelievers and believers not being bound in such circumstances, Mm -hmm. um, then I'd say you'd move on. But for your own peace of mind, um, one of the best pieces of advice that you'll ever get if you're contemplating a divorce is this, you can get divorced anytime. Not hard to do. Um, Just go down, you know, you take out the papers, 45 days later, you go back and swear before a judge, your marriage is irretrievably broken, it's done. 
but it's a decision that you have to live with for the rest of your life. And one of the most important things you got to work through in this is that, uh, you know, going forward, you're going to have to look yourself in the mirror uh, each and every day and live with that decision. And I think the way of, of coming to peace in all of this is knowing in your heart that you did everything in a righteous way uh, to try to reconcile the relationship. Mm -hmm. So that would be the direction I'd encourage you to pursue. Good advice. And sorry that you're going through that. If that's you, you yourself uh, hopeful, if that's the whole situation, um, uh, we pray for you in our hearts for sure. As, yeah. a, as, a, as a new believer, assuming this is recent, uh, as a new believer, uh, praise God you've come to faith. That's awesome. And uh, as Pastor Scott said, <clears throat> prayer and counsel. Good, good stuff. Uh, Ernesto, Ernesto wants to know, having a conversation with a skeptic sharing their faith, wondering uh, the idea that, well, we're all worshiping the same God, Vishnu, Krishna, Allah. In the end, all people are pursuing the same God. That's kind of the, where the conversation was going, and Ernesto was wondering, uh, is it true that we are just really following up the same God, even if we don't know that it's God? But in a sense, these are all humanity's attempts to follow and worship the same God, but they're just expressing it in ignorant ways? Yeah, you know, I think uh, an issue that Ernesto brings up here that, that is basically been promoted uh, by a very popular internet movie called the Zeitgeist movie uh, that, uh, I mean, it's like full, chock full of conspiracy theories and things like this beyond that everything beyond wrong with the world is run by international bankers that 9-11 was an inside job and that of course jesus never existed he was a myth that was copied from pagan myths especially and, out of horus yeah and uh, and ernesto says that he encountered that now sean if someone comes to you and says well you know here we see an egyptian mythology i saw it on this uh, the, the interwebs and you know it's got to be true if it's on the inter internet oh yeah uh, about horus uh, being resurrected just like Jesus. He had 12 disciples just like Jesus. He did miracles just like Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He born of a virgin and so on. How do you respond to that? And how would you encourage Horace, or I should say Ernesto, Ernesto not Horace. <laughs> how would you encourage Ernesto uh, to be able to share your faith directly when it almost, I'm smelling a red herring here. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, first of all, uh, whoever told you that was lying or they were lied to. There are no third options. When it comes to the claims that someone makes, obviously this whole smokescreen, that's all you can really call it, of, well, all religious rivers flow to that great ocean that is God. As long as you're sincere, then God will respect that, whatever he is. Or um, I, I was talking to a Sikh, actually, a few weeks ago, where he said, my basic view of the supernatural is it's beyond me, it's above me, it's nothing that I could ever fully grasp, I'm finite, it's infinite, that is just something I'll leave to them the infinite things. I'm just focusing on my finite, that what I can do practically here and now is what matters, and right. that it'll be sorted out along the way. Well, all well and good, but when it comes to reality, like we talk about often on the broadcast, sincerity is a worthless virtue if it's not invested in truth. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways that we can learn about something that is beyond us. We could either speculate and hope we get close, or it can be revealed to us 
by that source in a way that we can understand it. The person who argues, well, that's your interpretation, what about these other interpretations, is equivocating speculation with revelation. It's discounting, dismissing, and disrespecting your view, Ernesto, and you need to call them on this, in equating it with a bunch of people who couldn't depend on revelation, who simply claimed, this is my perspective. When it comes, and the best way to debunk this is to basically play the illustration game, even though it's pretty manipulative, we can bring it to its logical end. The illustration that's meant to pursue the supernatural is something beyond you, yet in your limited capacity to understand it, you can be sincere in what you have access to, and it's just as right as anyone else's. The elephant and the blind men, right? One man reaches over, touches the side of the elephant, and says, this is a wall. One man grabs the tail and says, this is a rope. One man grabs the trunk and says, this is a snake. One man grabs the tusk and says, this is a spear. They're all right in what they have access to, but all wrong in the big picture. Now, if we're to say Christianity is just the snake perspective, it's holding the tusk, and Islam is the one holding the wall, and Egyptian paganism was the one that was holding the tusk, well, great, but guess what? At the end of the conversation, the person telling the parable knows they're all wrong. It's an elephant. And you're calling us blind people grasping in the dark. So if that is taken as the insult that it is veiled to not be, then you need to make sure that they're being held accountable to what's actually being interacted with. For example, if they say, well, Christianity and Egyptian paganism both claim to be touching some aspect of the spear. Both claim that God revealed himself through a virgin birth, a resurrection from the dead. Well, let's uh, do this old uh, antiquated theme of asking a simple question, can I look that up and get back to you? Because after two minutes of research, you're going to find three vague sources about the Egyptian god Horus. The most comprehensive is the Book of the Dead, but even then you'll find multiple versions of it that confuse him with his father, all that being made uh, plain. When it comes to the hieroglyphs that we base the account of Horus on, the loose interpretations that are made by people who are notoriously unobjective, in not only their hostility towards Christianity, but their notorious mishandling of Egyptian texts in order to use Jewish terms, Jewish terms, not Egyptian terms, Jewish terms, to describe things like, for instance, uh, Horus was baptized in the Nile. No, we have a hieroglyph of him near the Nile River. Baptism means immersion, and it was a ceremonial dedication in Jewish culture on dedicating yourself and even objects to God. Horus having access to water is not a baptism. Also note, if we're going to say, oh, Horus was born of a virgin. No, the born of a virgin was an exclusive Jewish claim that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, where that's how the anointed one, the Messiah, would be recognized. Horus, if you read the Egyptian Book of the Dead and its various sources, essentially comes out as something like this. I apologize if this is crass. We're talking about paganism. Os- uh, Isis, the mother of, o- of uh, Horus and the wife of Osiris, the Egyptian god of the dead, was 
of course, in a conflict with this other deity who tore Osiris into 13 pieces. She couldn't find all of the pieces, so she made a fake part of what you're going to find here in a moment. When she assembled all the pieces scattered throughout the Nile, she copulated with the fake piece that she replaced with in the form of a bird, and the result of that conception was Horus. Now, I'm no doctor, but a combination of necrophilia and bestiality is not a virgin birth. <laughs> All wow. that takes is about two You're minutes so of narrow, research. Dude. Oh, I know. <laughs> they have a definitions and stuff. And the same thing for the resurrection from the dead. When you say, oh, Horus uh, descended into the underworld where he's now alive. Yeah, Jesus physically descended into the heart of the earth and returned physically and is also going to return physically again. The departure of Horus into the underworld to join with his father Osiris did not include a physical return to this world. Definitions matter. So just like with the elephant in loosely defining the tusk as a spear and saying, well, you're both right. It's lying about the person who's touching the spear and says it's an elephant. They're both saying, well, they both said a spear. So don't fall for this red herring, this equivocation, this dancing around with words and misrepresenting plain history because the Egyptian Book of the Dead, like most of the other things they claim, is available for free online. I'm not that smart. I just learned to read. And if we're willing to do our research, we can call people out on this kind of nonsense. Hmm. That then being said, when we get back to the sincerity is the greatest virtue at the end of the day or at the end of eternity, if you will. That's not the kind of odds I'd want to gamble with, because wrong answers have very serious consequences, not according to me, not according to just the narrow, bigoted view of Christians, but according to Islam, if, and Adrian, you and I have some experience dealing with the claims fundamentally of Islamic theology and salvation, soteriology, if you want the fancy word for it, do Muslims have this shared perspective, or I shouldn't say Muslims, does Islam's primary sources, did Muhammad bin Abdullah have a broad view of sincerity and saying, well, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jew, if you're a pagan, if you're an atheist, then you are basically going to end up the same place as Muslims, just make sure that you're sincere. Is that uh, true in Islam? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, also note, when it comes to, say, Zoroastrians, do non-Persians benefit at all from the advent of Ormazd? No, they'll be consumed in lava when he creates the new world. I, I say lava, it's a fire liquid, but you get the idea of the picture there. Do Egyptian pagans have anything positive to say to people outside of their nation? No, because it wasn't relevant to them. Do Norse pagans have anything positive to say about the world outside of their borders? No. Do, do any religious views have any positive views towards anybody outside of their religious views? And the funny part is, no. Even Wiccans, the people who participate and uh, get to enjoy Summerland, according to Gerald Gardner, are the people who adopt his creed and, of course, observe his broad faculties. Now, it could include people who don't take their religion seriously, but he had very negative views of people who'd insist Summerland didn't exist and that they wouldn't participate in it, that those who continue to reincarnate are going to continue to do so until they come around to catch this his narrow way of thinking, and on it goes. So you have to not only disrespect these religious claims to the point where you make them non-existent, but you have to misrepresent them to the point where you're not only lying, but making the fundamental claims of all religions lies as well. 
that doesn't sound very tolerant, though you can use the word 15 times in the same breath. So here's the point. When it comes to the difference between speculation and revelation, Muhammad claimed to have been revealed these truths by Allah. That's either true or that's false. You can read his sources and find out and conclude whether or not that's the case. The pagans claim to be given revelations in their drunken stupors and acid trips. I'm not kidding. That's how they receive this stuff as a result of their interactions with these rituals that were given to them through the tradition of their family. That is either right or it's wrong. Then we go to Christianity. When it comes to taking the people's word for it, that either God spoke to Muhammad or he didn't, either God spoke to the oracle at Delphi, the sages, the magi, whoever, or he didn't. Either God spoke through Moses and the prophets, or he didn't. How do we verify the Jewish sources as more dependable than these pagan sources, than the Muslim sources, than any other source? The answer is that God actually showed up. The historical death and resurrection of Jesus are more verifiable than you having breakfast this morning. And we can test that. We can know that. We can hold it to any standard we would have towards any other historical claim and conclude, okay, not only did this person exist and claim to be God, but he did the sort of things we'd expect from someone trying to prove that. We have no record of Horace's existence, just stories attributed to him thousands of years after they would have supposedly taken place. We have no records of Thor or <laughs> any of these other things. Even the life of Muhammad, the early the earliest biography we have of his life is Ibn, or an edited version rather, of Ibn Ashaq. It was written by his student Ibn Asham. And all of the quote unquote miracles that he performed, they're non existent. The only miracle that he performed that would show he was from God was the fact that his poetry is better than yours. That's the argument mm -hmm. of Islam. <clears throat> yeah. You have a nice opinion for that, but here's the point. We base our trust on Jesus of Nazareth, take it or leave it. If you're having a conversation, sharing your faith, make sure the conversation goes back to what he actually said, not what Horace never did. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to get a lot of that. Mm -hmm. That sure gets thrown around yeah. a lot. But, uh, you know, just asking people, okay, well, what's your source on that? Uh, as far as Horace is concerned and saying, you know, let me tell you a little bit about the reliability of the Bible. You know, why we believe that the Bible is telling the truth, why mm -hmm. it's historically reliable. And if we can do that and, and switch the conversation in that direction, then I think we're getting somewhere. Yeah, it's a common misunderstanding that, generally speaking, religions are the same, <clears throat> but they are not. Having spent lots of time talking with Buddhist monks in East Asia and Hindu priests in South Asia and Muslim clerics in the Arabian Peninsula and so on, uh, it's the opposite when it comes to the fundamentals of where did we come from how do we live what's the meaning of life where do we go after we die who is god and how do we know him we all fundamentally disagree we are on the fundamentals contradict one another and two statements meaning the same thing at the same time cannot give opposite answers and both be correct or true so just on the basis of the law of non-contradiction, it's possible for all religions to be completely wrong, but it's impossible for them to be all the same. Or I mean, all true. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> Jess uh, says, hello. Hey, and Jess. <laughs> wants to know, um, will we automatically know things in heaven? We see through a glass dimly. We know in part, but will we know, but we will know full. 
We won't ask questions. I was taught this by a Pentecostal pastor. We will automatically know. We won't ask questions. Uh, what are your thoughts? Always something special from the Pentecostal groups. <laughs> <laughs> well, 1 Corinthians 13 is the passage being referred to there, and uh, the, the full context of this is love never fails. We're at verse 9 there. But where there are prophecies, they will fail, and where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there, there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know just as I also am known. Now that's a pretty remarkable statement. And uh, you know, I think what it means is, is that when we're in the presence of Almighty God, uh, we are not going to have, uh, say, a lack of a desire to look into the truth of God. Uh, but we were, we're not, no longer going to have doubt-based questions. Uh, our picture of the character and nature of God is going to be so clear that we're going to be able to, in a sense, see everything else by it. Like C.S. Lewis's famous line, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it I also see everything else. So when we get to heaven, does that mean that uh, there won't be any curiosity in our perfected uh, form? I would have a hard time believing that because the drive of curiosity, I think, is part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God in that we love truth and we mm -hmm. desire more truth. In heaven, I think that process is obviously not going to be as inhibited as it is here, looking through a glass darkly. We'll see God face to face. Mm -hmm. And through that process, I believe that heaven is going to be a constant experience of discovery. Why? Because even though we are perfected when we're in heaven, we look at the Lord, we are looking at a being of infinite beauty and mm -hmm. majesty and truth. And if we're talking about the infinite and we are still finite, there's always going to be something new and wonderful to discover mm -hmm. uh, about God in that in that sense. It's not going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I heard that. We know it yeah. all. 100% up to speed. Now, you won't need people like me to explain the Lord to you. Uh, you know, again, the scripture says they will all be taught by God. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll eliminate the middleman for sure. Uh, but uh, boy, what a beautiful thing hmm. it's going to be to see the Lord in that light. And it's not as if we're going to be in a non-physical state. We will be in a creation. And if you think, well, if the universe is as vast as it is, gosh, there's going to be a lot to learn. Yeah, one of the things that always gets <laughs> thrown around is uh, that eternity is timeless, that we won't experience time in eternity. And, and it was just sort of a given to me for years to believe that until I looked at uh, what the book of Revelation has to say uh, about the experience of the new heavens and the new earth, talks about the uh, tree of life bearing a different kind of fruit every month. Um, so we're going to have months. We're going to have successive uh, events taking place. Uh, the fruit of the tree of life you had last month isn't going to be the same that you're going to have next month. Mm. So there is going to be an experience of time, but the, the thing that's mind-boggling to me is time as we experience it here is always a measure of decay. The more time goes on, the more things fall apart. Mm. The more they run out, the more they go to ruin. Uh, in eternity, uh, we're going to experience, in a sense, the opposite. Uh, things are just going to get better and better. Mm. So, you know, 
Can I understand that? No more than, say, a fish that lives its entire life 3,000 feet below the surface yeah. can understand what a sunset is. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't live in that universe yet, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we aren't going to experience it. And that's probably the, a big aspect of the reality that Paul is saying that we can't even fathom. We just see very dimly. Yeah. Uh, we won't instantaneously have all knowledge, but we will see. Have access to it. Yeah, we'll have yeah. access to it. I love it. And, and, the, and uh, the greatest teacher beyond this universe to lead us mm -hmm. into all truth. Isn't that awesome? And someone who loves you so much, not like, I mean, sometimes people, their perceptions of God are so interesting that oftentimes I don't know where they get these caricatures from, but this idea that this God's sternful killjoy, uh, this is a God who loved us so much that he gave his only son. Jesus wept for the children of Israel, wept. This is the creator of the universe in human form, and he's weeping for his people. Anointed yeah. with the spirit of gladness more than that of his companions. He was a fun guy to be around. Yeah, and you know, um, I hate to open another can of worms, but where do people get that impression? Probably by looking at some people who purport to be God's spokespeople. Mm. I mean, so many of them are just so harsh. And, mm. you know, my wife and I were watching a documentary, uh, this one kind of aberrant group that was popular back in the 70s and 80s. and you know, they had uh, some of their material on there and they had this really gruff, gruff and gruff, grouse looking guy, you know, sort of looking at the camera like if he smiled, his face would break and he goes, I'm here to teach your children the piano and the joy they will have in learning how to do it. <laughs> and it just reminds me of that, boy, you better wow. tell your face kind of thing. This guy was baptized so, you know, in I, lemon juice. Yeah, <laughs> I think when people look at that and they associate that with being a spiritual leader, so, well, this person's closer to God than I am, so uh, maybe that's what God's all about. Mm. But like you said, Sean, the opposite's true, right? Right. Yeah. So. Have you seen that one uh, movie that they, 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 they picked the Christian story of Christ through the eyes of the Roman soldier? Risen. Risen, yes. And I, I love how they characterize some of the disciples as these just joy-filled men that were just almost ignorant of how evil the world is because they were so um, hopefully joyful about the reality that the Savior had come. Yeah, and you notice that that uh, changed definitely over time when they were hanging around with Jesus. Some of them had uh, pretty bad toods, mm. politically and socially. Look at uh, the Sons of Thunder. But um, yeah. Simon the Zealot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, how well he yeah. probably got yeah. along with Matthew. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That, I just, that, that what impacted me with that film was just saying, gosh, I want that joy. I know it's an yeah. actor, it's a dramatization, but still it reminded me of that joy is a choice and a command. Yeah. Not yeah, you know, I, I, fulfilled. Yeah, I, I had a, a similar experience earlier. Uh, the Calvary Chapel magazine that gets put out uh, features the Jesus movement and how things started. And, you know, there's some pictures in there of uh, people that I still know today, like Odin Fong is in this one picture. And uh, boy, when he was really, really young and, and all of that. And, you know, pictures of, uh, of Pastor Chuck and, and uh, just the baptisms at Pirate's Cove and just this amazing work of God's Spirit. And, you know, I remember back during the Jesus Movement days when I came to know the Lord, you know, even before I came to know the Lord, I'd see these, like, we call them Jesus freaks, kind of these hippies that had come to know the Lord, hanging out and doing a Bible study, you know, during uh, lunch break at high school. And I'd kind of look at them and go, man, they seem kind of weird to me. But the one thing that I, I loved about them was there was just, they seemed to really care about each other. They really seemed to enjoy each other's company. And and, you know, I just thought, man, there's something, even as an atheist, I looked at it, there's, there's something cool about that. 
there's something that was winsome about all of that. And, you know, I, I think if we focus again on the joy of the fact that uh, the Messiah has come, that we can know the way to eternal life, that with Jesus the mm. best is yet to come, mm. man, you know, hopefully non-believers are going to see that joy in us. They're going to want yeah. some of that as well. So that's a, that's a, if you're struggling to have joy, that at least the conviction that brings to my mind is pray for more faith. We can do that. We're allowed to pray for more reasons to trust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I was in Costco uh, a while back and, and uh, we had just had an awesome time at church and we were kind of in the checkout line and the lady in the checkout line uh, looks at me and says, well, what are you so happy about? (laughs) I didn't even realize I was happy. You know, I was just, you know, kind of that place of, of just Mm. enjoying the life that God had given me, even in Costco. And and I I looked at her and I, I said, well, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, soon? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and we just both laughed. But, but, you know, the point being, man, when you know where you're going and, you know, that uh, you're going to see the Lord before you know it, then we really do have a reason to smile in this world. Do we have any more? I haven't seen any Three more. Three more questions. Oh. Um, we got a question from Chip who wants to know if the Antichrist or the false prophet will be a pope, not the current, but is it possible there'll be some kind of bishop that's based off of a very uh, very shallow view of Revelation chapter 17, where one of the symbols used to describe the woman that's Mystery Babylon that will be upholding the beast is clothed in scarlet. That's in verse 3 of Revelation 17. Uh, once again, scarlet was a very valuable commodity. It's noted clothed luxuriously. Uh, the chapter goes on to explain the significance of all of the symbols that were significant to know. Uh, the horns were kings, the uh, waters that she was sitting on were nations. These are political figures. If we're going to read that into the Roman Catholic Church, it's a stretch. And again, you clarify, not the current Pope, obviously, but could it be? Let's focus less on the Antichrist, more on Jesus Christ. That'll be their problem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll be here same place, same time tomorrow. And if we didn't get to your question, we will try to get to it back again then. So God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.